Welcome to, what is this now, episode 9 of Thinking Out Loud. And my name is Jerry O'Neill. Today I'm going to be talking about my one of my favourite subjects, the Chinese Communist Party. We're going to take a step back from the US presidential election and take a view at the global landscape. My view on looking at any thing going on in the United States is always with the mind for what is happening in the global picture. And for me, the biggest and only story in the global picture is this wrestling between the United States and China for global dominance. So I might be wrong on that. Maybe you think I'm wrong on that. I don't think I'm wrong on that. But that's how I view the world. So yesterday I came across an article. Well, first of all, I came across a paper by a PhD student in Kenya. Don't worry, I'm going to try and link all this in. But that got me thinking about Ireland and Ireland's pivotal place in the European economy and pivotal place towards China achieving its goals in Europe because if for argument's sake Joe Biden who wins this election and I'm one of the people that thinks he still has not got there he's still not over the line but if he does that is going to spell big trouble over the next five years in terms of that wrestling match between the United States and China. And it's going to be the the advantage is going to shift significantly in favor of China. And I'm going to try and explain that during the course of this episode. But first, let's take a look at this article um, or this information that I came across uh, in Kenya. Now, why is Kenya important? Kenya is important due to the fact that China started executing this Belt and Road um, initiative, I don't know, maybe five, five years ago now at this stage. And basically, it's a huge infrastructure drive to get Chinese exports from China out around the world in a more streamlined fashion. Now you might, on the face of it, that sounds, well, they're investing in countries outside of China. Uh, these countries are getting infrastructure that they wouldn't be able to afford themselves. and It's all good. Well, it's all bad, is my 
um, thesis. So we'll start with Kenya. Now, why would Kenya be important? Now, Kenya has a port called in Mombasa, and it's a strategic port for China in terms of getting its goods and services up through the Suez Canal and into Europe, a stopping off point, if you like. So massive investment has gone into this project over the last couple of years. And it, it has, in fact, made a, a couple of international headlines uh, in terms of what the Chinese are doing there, because basically they have loaned the money to the Kenyan government to build or renovate this port, extend this port. And what I'm going to do is first talk about what what why that's important and why it's possibly very bad for the Kenyan economy. So I'm going to start by reading an article from a guy, Andre Wheeler, who um, knows a thing or two about a thing or two in Kenya. And he's written this article in Splash247.com. And it's just a simple... Uh, piece on Kenya's Mombasa port, another victim of Ch China's debt diplomacy, question mark. And here we go. The crescendo around claims that the Belt and Road Initiative is nothing more than Chinese debt diplomacy to secure strategic assets reached a crescendo at the end of 2019. The central claim is that China engages in debt for asset swaps to secure control, secure and control of strategic assets along the Belt and Road. Whilst this is an important discussion to have, much of the criticism has not stood up to scrutiny when one looks at the facts. In some extreme cases, the B BRI, Belt and Road Initiative, is portrayed as the end time prophesied in the Bible's book of Revelations. So that's the first paragraph. So the setup by this journalist is that he's outlined the concerns, but there's skepticism on his part as to whether the Chinese are actually engaged in this kind of activity. And all I would say there is the debt for asset swap is this. China loans you the money at exorbitant interest rates. A depressed economy can't afford to repay the loan and the Chinese Communist Party end up in joint ownership or full ownership of a country's strategic assets and in this case it will be the Port of Mumbai. Now the date of the article is important because it's the 6th of February just before coronavirus broke into public consciousness around the world. So at this point, I suppose this journalist is kind of sceptical, is being a bit of an optimist about, you know, Chinese intentions. Um, so that is the first paragraph. But the second paragraph would be a little more interesting. There is, however, an interesting case emerging in Africa and the port of Mombasa in Kenya. When analysing Kenya's position, there does appear to be the potential for a debt for asset swap with regards 
to Mombasa port. There is, however, a need to, for some context around the debate. Lost in the debate is the reality that Kenya's debt repayment is only due to commence in June 2020. This makes any analysis around Kenya as being speculative at best. End of paragraph. So, by virtue of the fact that the Kenyans have only recently engaged in this contract, the journalist points, and rightly given the information he had at his disposal at the time, is that although there is a, a clause in this arrangement, uh, we don't know how it's going to turn out because the re the repayments don't start till June 2020. Now, how does everybody think Kenya's ability to pay this loan back is after nine months of coronavirus? Not very good. Or, to put it another way, a lot worse than they were in February of 2020. So I just wanted to read that section because it highlights the critical position an awful lot of countries that have accepted investment from the Chinese Communist Party for the Belt and Road Initiative are now in with regard to their debt repayments to the Chinese Communist Party. And just so you know, the Chinese Communist Party are not known to be benign when it comes to looking for their money back or looking for their investment back. So this places Kenya in a difficult position. Now this brings me back to the PhD research paper that I was reading, skimming through really, because I was looking for a particular piece of information and this uh, woman that wrote the paper had it in detail. So my question basically was how much what is what is how much money how much capital how much wealth is created in Kenya through their trade relationship with China? And the answer was kind of shocking. Kenya is the largest importer of of Chinese products. Sorry, let's put this another way. Kenya exports $167 million a year worth of goods and services to China. And that is, even though it's a small number, their largest export market. So the next question to ask yourself is, well, how much, who, who, who has the balance of power in this relationship. So to answer that question, we would ask how much goods and services does Kenya import from China? And the answer to that question is $3.5 billion worth of goods and services. So you can see there immediately that China has a $3 billion trade surplus with Kenya. So they're the power, power brokers uh, in this relationship. And the side effect of this trade relationship has been the destruction of the Kenyan textile industry, the production manufacture of, you know, clothes, um, fabrics and that kind of um, product.
that would that's a huge industry for Kenyans. It's a it's a labor intensive and indigenous native industry in Kenya that would have employed tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Kenyans. What the trade relationship with China has done has destroyed these small businesses and replaced them with cheap imports of Chinese clothing. So they can't compete. They can't compete on, they can't produce those goods at the same price domestically. So this, while this paper is not really to do with the Belt and Road, it gives you an it gives me an indicator of what what's the strength of the Kenyan economy to replace, you know, repay all these large loans that they're receiving from the Chinese government. And my synopsis of it is they have very little chance of fulfilling their obligations. And I'd go further in saying that the people negotiating on the on the Kenyan side know this, and the Chinese involved in the Chinese side of the negotiations know this, and it's a straight up kind of a bribery, political bribery, you know, case in terms of they target a small group of people who have influence on political decisions, enrich them to make decisions favorable to China, and the Kenyan people suffer. So why is that relevant to what I'm talking about in terms of what the CCP are going to do, are going to use Ireland to do, and to expand their influence into Europe? Well, this is how I think about it. Is that's the ch what I've described there in Kenya is is the ch the Chinese Communist Party's playbook. In essence, there they've they've attempted to create a slave state out of Kenya. Now, it's much easier to do in countries in sub-Saharan Africa that have very high poverty rates, low GDP output um, from the individual countries. So a lot less money goes a long way in terms of influence. One of the huge strategic mistakes the United States have made over the last 20 years is they've basically left the continent of Africa open to Chinese influence. And you can see it across a number of countries in Africa where China have bought up huge holdings of land in, across the continent, especially countries within north and south of the equator, where there is, there are hugely fertile countries, a lot of these, even though our imagination about Africa as a continent is maybe one of, you know, desert and dysfunction. But quite a lot of these countries have, especially on, especially countries um, towards the 
Indian Ocean are, you know, high in raw materials, high in natural resources. And the Chinese Communist Party have gone into these countries and bought up huge acreage to feed their own people in, in China because one of the landmarks of China is, you know, 60, 70, maybe 80% of the China landmass is mountainous and not particularly useful in terms of agricultural output. Now, the Chinese innovation has, you know, you'll see, you know, paddy fields up the side of a mountain or, you know, in really poor land and working conditions. But there's a real shortage of land in China, even though it's one of the biggest countries in the world. You know, 70, 80 percent of the of the land surface is not conducive to good agricultural output. So that would be the reasoning behind buying up large tracts of Africa. So getting back to nearer home and Ireland, we have to look at it in terms of why are they suddenly so interested in Ireland over the last five years? Well, the, the number one country they had their eyes on was the United Kingdom. Now, because the United Kingdom have left the European Union, that has got in the way of Chinese communist plans in terms of their influence in that country. Now, they still have huge influence, and we've seen it as recently as this summer where the Chinese Communist Party influenced Huawei, technology company, had its tentacles in the 5G network rollout in the UK and it took huge huge influence mainly from President Trump to get the United Kingdom to reverse its decision on Huawei and to basically kick them out of the infrastructure, network infrastructure of the United Kingdom and it was a good thing that he got them to do that in my opinion but the Chinese influence was always focused on the UK as an, one as an English speaking country, but two as a, an influential country in the broader European Union. Now the UK have left, so the Chinese have turned their gaze to Ireland because, again, as an English speaking country, the only real English speaking country left in Europe. And I, why that is important is. The international language of business is English. And the efforts in our underway big time to get as much of a footprint in Ireland as possible. So, to that end, currently in Ireland, Huawei have a huge presence and are part of are going to be part of any 5G network rollout in Ireland. This is a lunacy, in my opinion. They have also, as recently as today, announced further investment in a company I'm sure you're all familiar with, TikTok. So TikTok have a presence of about 900 people in Ireland. During the summer, at the height of the argument between Trump and the Chinese over banning TikTok in the United States, China 
announced that it was creating its a European data center in Ireland with an investment of $420 million. And Ireland just opened its arms to this decision. I find it ludicrous because having a TikTok data center is like basically somebody coming to your house with a stolen gun and asking you to hold it for them. Because from my point of view, people's information on the social media media platform TikTok is in no way secure. And I'm pretty confident that user data is being siphoned off each and every user that has an account with TikTok. Having a data center in Ireland is basically, well, we need to store... We need somewhere to store all this stolen goods. And it would seem Ireland is going to be the place. So that happened during the summer. And then further, yesterday, TikTok announced a further expansion of on the, on the software development side, the data integrity quotes side of another 200 people. So we're going to have fourteen to 1,500 people working in TikTok by mid next year plus a data center that was is scheduled to open in 2022. Now, the thing about inviting the Chinese into your life is it's not so easy to invite them out of your life. And every country around the world, that small countries especially, that have got into bed with them, it's, it's been very difficult for uh, for them to express opinions that are not approved by the Chinese Communist Party. Case in point, the decision this year to fully introduce the security, new security laws in Hong Kong, which basically means Hong Kongers can be extradited back to mainland China uh, and be prosecuted in their courts for crimes. This has already led to huge protests, but that's been about it. They've been they've been allowed to do it. Global capital has been very quiet on the subject, and their their quietness is tacit approval of what has happened. That's my opinion on the the subject. You don't hear any Irish government minister on Irish broadways complaining about that decision because why because China's in full haul of investing money into Ireland in the middle of a pandemic they sh- absolutely shouldn't be accepting this TikTok this TikTok investment but nobody is seems willing to call out the Irish government on this Irish economic policy for the last 30 years has been based on attracting foreign direct investment and mainly foreign direct investment from the United States. And that relationship has given us a middle class of good paying jobs. But to be honest about it, if you, to be totally honest about it, and the reason Trump is not liked in Ireland is those jobs come at the expense of middle America. The Pfizer's, the Intel's of the world are, have, thousands of employees in Ireland that would otherwise be employed in the Ohio's, the Michigan's, the Wisconsin's, 
the Indianas of the world. So the problem of Donald Trump is he brought all of this into huge focus. And that inconvenient truth has been difficult for Irish people to deal with because we become we're we're like crack addicts for foreign direct investment. Um so that people are assuming in Ireland that with Joe Biden uh, Joe Biden election will mean we go back to business as usual as it's related to previous democratic democrat presidencies or administrations. That's probably what will that's probably what will happen. Uh but what the point to note here is China are now invested in the Irish market in a way that they never have been before. They have invested heavily in our universities, and by heavily in our universities, I mean these Confucius institutes are in all in all our main universities. And I just want to give you an example of that investment from an article from 2016, which when you read it in 2016, you thought, ah, well, that's, you know, that's not a big deal. But when you read, when you kind of go through it today, it's, it's much more worrying to kind of contemplate. So let me hang on a second here now, and I will bring up this article from the Irish Times. Let's see where it is. Irish university, Irish universities, and the Chinese connection. Is it worth the money? Can China save Ireland's universities? The number of Chinese students here is on the rise and their fees may be worth 500 million to our cash-strapped third-level sector. Last month, Ireland was given country of honour status at China Education Expo 2016, a prestigious education exhibition in Beijing and Shanghai. This is part of a wider government strategy to grow the economic value of the international education sector to 2.1 billion, uh, an increase of 33% by the year 2020, which we're in at the moment. Okay, end of paragraph there. Of course, Chinese students bring more than just money. They also give young Irish people the opportunity to to engage with one of the most diverse, interesting and powerful cultures on the planet. Okay, so we'll end it there for the moment. Two things to note. One, we're back here in the 2020 scenario. We currently have about 3,500 Chinese students going directly into our university system. That's a rise. That's a threefold rise from 2013, and it's only set to get bigger once this coronavirus pandemic has been shut down. The other point to note is the Chinese government, in conjunction with the Irish government and universities, have invested massive amounts of money and infrastructure on these university campuses to build what they call these Chinese or these Confucius institutes. Uh, 
So the the largest university in Ireland for for students is University College Dublin. And they recently completed a 4.5 million building Confucius Institute building on the campus for you know their Chinese students in UCD but also for the wider Chinese public to get Chinese lessons, you know, Chinese culture, all of this kind of thing. Now, the problem with that is, as we've seen in the United States, they're not just trying to introduce culture to China's people. They're trying to introduce culture that infiltrates into Irish culture. And there has been huge problems in the United States, and in fact, a, a number of them have been shut uh, shut down in the last year. And already, Sweden and Norway, where these institutes were starting to take hold, have banned them from their campuses, and they've banned them outright from being able to operate in China, in Sweden, and Norway. But in Ireland, we're building four point five million euro buildings to house these um, institutes. And the curious arrangement with the use, the University College of Dublin was there was almost a bit of an in, international incident over this Confucius Institute because they ran out of money. There was an overspend. The Chinese side of it had agreed to, I think, two and a half or three million euros of the past, but that was it. I think it ran to four and a half, four point eight million, whatever the sum was. There was a shortfall of a million, and the government, Irish government, weren't willing to put it up. Eventually, they got, they put it up, or an arrangement was came to. But one of the contractual points in the fine print is that if the Confucius um, Institute in UCD ever has is asked to leave or to shut down, that the University College of Dublin have to pay the Confucius Institute sixty thousand euros a year for I don't know God only knows how long to pay back the money. So there's never any free lunch with Chinese Communist Party money, and that's why we've seen the expansion of these institutes to Maynooth, Galway, you know, they're, they're, they're pretty widespread now. So a point to keep an eye on for me over the next 12 months to two years is to see how many student visas are given to Chinese students coming into Ireland. I, I suggest that number from 3,500 is going to, is going to double and triple in the next couple of years. And why is that important? Because there's a curious thing in Irish visa laws, especially with student visas. If you're in full-time education on a student visa in Ireland for the length of your time here, you're allowed to work as well to a certain number of hours. But on graduation, there's a special type of graduate visa that non-Irish, non-European students can get for a year or two years 
so that they can go out into the Irish workforce. And this is the key that picks the lock of Chinese um, employment in Ireland is the employer in normal circumstances, if they want to hire a non-European person into their company, the, the employer has to go to the trouble of applying for their work visa. And it's a long, laborious, sometimes costly process to do that. And employers would rather hire some an Irish or someone easier. What what the what these one year and I think in some cases two year visa postgraduate visas give to non European people is the ability for a work uh, an employer not to have to do that so that the student has an eleven or twelve month visa. So then, if an employer hires them on that type of visa, all the employer can do then is they can apply to extend the visa. So the employers get the opportunity to have some of the work. If they're good, they'll want to keep them. And there's no, there's no risk in going to all the trouble of extending that visa out. <coughs> so why Irish people should keep an eye on this is that, remember, the American foreign direct investment into Ireland is huge, like 90-95% of the foreign direct investment of the last 25 years come from the United States. So Ireland has massive footprint, especially in the pharmaceutical industry uh, in Ireland. So if you think of Pfizer's, Pfizer's global headquarters are in Ireland. So they're newsworthy at the moment in because of the um, coronavirus vaccine that they've produced. All of the major United States pharmaceutical companies have a heavy footprint in Ireland. We now have a situation developing where this same sector, the Chinese Communist Party, are investing in Ireland. They're about to open a pharmaceutical plant on the east coast of the country. They're first in Ireland. Now, think of all the Chinese students that are coming into Ireland to study and then have the opportunity to filter out into our workforce. What you're going to start to see is cross-pollination of Chinese students going into American multinational corporations. And we've seen in the United States how devastating that has been in not just in the academic world in terms of, of abusing and stealing intellectual property rights, but also in terms of the Chinese Communist Party's ability, especially with the student visa sector, to get them to basically work as a arm of the foreign intelligence services of China. Now, if you consider how hard it is to do that in the United States when you have about 15 different intelligence agencies supposedly watching these things, and they've still been able to do it in the hundreds of billions. Can you imagine how easy it's going to be in Ireland to do it when we don't have one intelligence service in the country? It's, it's, it, it's really going to be 
a hotbed of activity Ireland over the next five years, especially if it's a Biden administration, because a Biden administration will go back to 2016 policies. Ireland's a friendly nation, and we are a friendly nation. But the the approach Ireland should have always taken with the Trump presidency was to sell Ireland as the 51st state of the United States, to develop that kind of a relationship. And I think we were on the grounds, I think we were on the path to do that. And I, from any information I have, Trump had a warm relationship with our uh, Taoiseach and leader behind the scenes, even though publicly he didn't say too much, especially the first two or three years of the Trump presidency. But the Biden administration is just going to go back to the status quo. So we're going to have um, nobody looking out for your, for um, control in the multinational sector and a firm grasp on bringing back this sector home in terms of their jobs. And the more worrying thing for the United States is I think you're going to start to see Chinese Communist Party infiltration of the pharma sector through Ireland based on our very loose rules with regard to with regard to the education sector and the student the, the the volume of students coming through Ireland so the proof will be in the pudding because at the moment we have 3500 um Chinese students in the, the main universities and technical colleges. And if that number goes through the roof over the next, you know, two to three years, I think you're going to start to see that play out if those students stay in Ireland. And a good majority of them do stay in Ireland. So we'll, 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 we'll keep an eye on, on that one as we're going forward. And you know the only other thing, like the et the ethnic chi the the Chinese uh, footprint in Ireland is an interesting one because there's about sixty thousand ethnic Chinese living in Ireland, which is you know Ireland's a country of five million people. It's not particularly big, but one of the things you have to remember is that that sixty thousand represents the second largest ethnic community in Ireland outside of the Polish. And the other thing is, the vast majority of the ethnic Irish in the seventies, eighties, and nineties, when that when that wave of Chinese came into Ireland, it was virtually all immigration from Hong Kong. You know, a, a, a free society. Whereas all of the ethnic Chinese um, immigration coming into Ireland for the past five or six years has been from mainland China through their university sector. And that will be, you know, we're going to, we're, we're, we're going to need to keep a very close eye on what's going on and that whole relationship as we're going forward. As I've outlined here, the omens are not good when Ireland is putting its hand up for TikTok investment in the middle of this pandemic, when India had, the, the continent of India with 1.1 billion people has banned TikTok and about 50 other Chinese applications. When the United States is in a war with 
TikTok over, you know, data protection and all this kind of stuff, data integrity. Now, there's a curious attitude here, and I see it in the state, especially with young people, and the, about their own data and about their own information and about their uh, their own government or companies monitoring their behavior. And it's the answer to the question from the, that sector is, I don't care what people know about me or what I did. I have nothing to hide. And they completely missed the point. Data security or data integrity is not about what you did in your past. It's about predicting what you're going to do in your future. And predicting and refining what you're going to do in your future. So not only are they looking to what you're going to do with your free will in the future, they're, they're going to be able to predict that. But they're going to also want to be able to tailor how you behave to certain events and influences in the future. So it's insidious. So how the generation under 30 do not see this is beyond me. But it's um, it's something that we'll all need to think about or we'll all not need to think about because we're gone too far down the road and, and past the point of no return. Um, and you might think maybe the Irish education system is waking up to China and the Chinese Communist Party, given the coronavirus fiasco and all the negative publicity directed at China? And the answer would be absolutely not. To give you an example, Trinity College, Dublin, the most prestigious university in Ireland with the biggest, the longest record of um, third level education in the country, has uh, set aside 200,000 euros or $100,000 in a targeted recruitment drive at Chinese students. And this announcement was made sometime during the summer. So Ireland think they want to become an international hub of education and that it, to make a sector out of it. And they're going... Up. The country they're targeting the most has the most capacity to turn us into a slave state. And that was the reason I brought in the Kenya example. We're in a much stronger position than Kenya, given we've had 25 years of economic expansion, as I've highlighted before, largely in part, largely due to American direct investment. And the Irish-American relationship is long, deep, going back to the famine times. You're talking about a nearly 200-year old relationship. We have deep ties with the United States. So this re this burgeoning relationship with China is it, it's mind-boggling when you consider what I just said because we have gone in the face of everything that came out of the Trump presidency. We fought or we're publicly critical of and we've said nothing about anything that the Chinese have done over the last four years, whether it's the Uyghur, whether it's the Uyghur concentration camps, whether it's the target the house Christians or Buddhists in, or any religious group in China, the human rights abuses, the secure the 
widespread surveillance of the Chinese people. I don't, I don't want people to get me the wrong way. When I'm, when I talk about China, when I say China, I'm talking about the Chinese Communist Party and the 90 million members of that party. You have 90 million people that have access to the club and you have 1.3 billion people who do not. And they're in essence, a kind of a slave in, in many ways. Ireland, while I'm saying Ireland's position is stronger, it's not at all impenetrable. That should be easy to guess. But we do have a balance of trade surplus with China. So China, we import about $5.71 billion worth of goods from China, but we export $9 billion euros worth of goods, and particularly in the agricultural sector, because Ireland is if not a world leader, a European leader in the ag science industries. So, you know, food science. And we export a lot in that sector to China. Uh, but, as I've said, the relationship is never a straight one with the Chinese Communist Party. And the decisions we're making are putting us in a position where in 10 years' time or 15 years' time, we'll be in a, in a scenario not 100 miles away from the scenario that Kenya finds itself in today. And it could be shorter because at the rate China is investing in Ireland and the decisions we're making here it might't it it might only take one American presidency for them to basically have their tenterhooks into the Irish economy to such a degree that we will not be able to voice our opinion on any subject in the world so whew, I've enough given out done about Chinese Communist Party now I've gone on there for about forty five minutes straight. Um, I just want to put that in context because I know a lot of um, American people that listen to this uh, podcast over the last few weeks aren't possibly aware of, you know, or mightn't be aware of how insidious the Chinese Communist Party are outside of America and what they're doing outside of the America at this moment of crisis in the United States is not an accident. Uh, it was one of the one of the things I liked about Donald Trump was this stance against China and to my mind he wasn't strong enough but it did make it did stop them it gave them pause for thought and that was an entirely good thing for him to do because the United States is the only country big enough to stop the global takeover of the Chinese Communist Party. I'm not worried about the Bill Gates of the world or you know, any of the other collection of tech nerds that are you know, billionaires, trillionaires. I'm not worried about Jeff Bezos. I'm not really worried about Bill Gates because for this reason, they will never be able to 
control the Chinese Communist Party. The Chinese Communist Party will be able to control them. And all, all I would say is we that's where the fight is. And in order for the United States to stand in the ring against them and not have one hand tied behind their backs, the American public need to come to terms with the influence of the tech billionaire sector and the adverse impact they're having on society, you know, the, the civil society of the United States. I think that's the first, if I was in the deplorable camp in the United States at the moment, the one thing I'd want to get sorted out in the event of a Trump loss would be to destroy the power the tech sector has on civil society in the United States and discourse. I think it's the number one thing that needs to be sorted out. And with that optimistic point, sorry if this uh, it seems like a bit of a rant, but um, it's the way I'm feeling today and thinking. Um, so I am going to leave it today and hopefully we'll get back, we'll have some news on all of the court cases pending by the Trump campaign in about five or six different states. And we'll go into them in some detail over the coming five or six days. So that's all for me today and thanks for listening. I'm